All right, Caitlin. It's summer blockbuster season mm-hmm. in honor of the forthcoming, much anticipated Barbie movie. Mm-hmm. Name your favorite badass female movie or TV character. Honestly, the first woman that came to mind is Erin Brockovich. <laughs> oh. Like the power of a push up bra and pouring over legal documents. Minus Carrie Russell, who is an undercover Russian spy, Elizabeth Jennings mm. in The Americans. What about the New York Times reporters and She Said? I'm, I'm a big fan of heroin journalists. I love a show about women who kick butts and take names. Literally take names in the journalist case. One of our favorite activities. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women also kicking butt and taking names in New York City. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. So for how many stories there are about kick-ass women on movies and TV, it's weird that there hasn't been a movie about Deborah. Like we have all these Bible movies, but why not a Deborah Bible movie. She's arguably the most badass woman in scripture. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the answer might be because patriarchy. Right. <laughs> that's that's probably a, a fair <laughs> assumption to start off with. We get all these movies about more secondary or submissive, kind of traditionally feminine women characters, but not Deborah, the fiery judge and leader of the Israelites. And let's not forget how that movie would end with Jael, also a woman, putting a stake through the head of the enemy king to save Israel. That is a kick-ass woman movie. If a little gruesome, a little, a little bloody. Definitely not a story that made it onto the Sunday school flannel board. It's a lot, a lot of red flannel <laughs> necessary for that story. <laughs> Speaking of Sunday school and women in the Bible, I thought we'd play an old time favorite Bible trivia. Mm, like a sword drill. So, yeah. I don't think I ever did a sword drill, and I'm nervous about this game because I it reminds me <laughs> that there's a lot of Bible stories I did not retain. <laughs> yeah, same. And it's been a while. I don't think I ever did sword drills, but there was like memorization drills. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. They tended yeah. not to be about the women in the Bible, though. No, but that's what this game is about. Yes, let's do it. All right. We're going to do this kind of Jeopardy style. I'll go first. Mm-hmm. Remember, you're supposed to answer like Jeopardy. Like, what is? <laughs> Who is? Yes, yes. I understand the format. Gotcha. Got the rules? Yeah. All right. Here we go. <laughs> first question. Women in the Bible for 500. There are two of them in the Bible. The first is known for her role in getting John the Baptist beheaded by her husband, Herod. The second was at the tomb of Jesus and one of the women who anointed his body. Oh, man. Who is Mary? One of the Marys? <laughs> I mean, it, when in doubt, Mary's a good first When ball. in doubt, we'll go with Mary. <sighs> I just lost 500 bucks. Who is Salome? Literally never heard of Salome. <laughs> this might be the point of this podcast. <laughs> All right, I got one for you. <clears throat> Going back a little bit further in scripture, who is the Israelite woman who snuck into the enemy Assyrians camp? And then proceeded to cut off the head of the top military leader. Ooh. And it's not Jael. It's not Jael. She's the only one I know yeah, there's, that I could think of that, was, that gruesomely won the battle for Israel. 
I'll give you a hint. She this I admit this is this was a bit of a trick question. She is mentioned in Genesis, but her full story is in an apocryphal book named after her. Mm, I still feel like it starts with a J, yes. but I don't know. Yes. Does it? Yes. Okay, okay. It's like two syllables. Ah. It's two syllables. Two syllables. Ah, it's like right on the tip of my tongue, and as soon as you say it, I'm not I'm gonna be mad at myself. <laughs> Do you want another hint? Um, I've gotten so many. <laughs> uh, mm, mm, Jolene. <laughs> but like same energy. Okay. The answer is Judith. Yes. I kept thinking Judith in my head and I was like, yeah. that's not a woman. <laughs> but yes, it's similar vibes. All right. I'll, I'll give you another chance. This is, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's any easier than Judith, but she's not apocryphal. <laughs> okay. What's the name of the woman who mocked King David for his passionate dance before the Lord? I don't know if you remember that. Like he danced I do. naked before the Lord. She mocked him, but then she saved his life by lowering him through a window. She proceeded to like put something in their bed, cover it with goat hair, and then lied to her father's messengers that it was David in the bed, that he was ill. Oh, Okay, I do not remember the second part of that, but this was Saul's daughter, who is yes Michael. Yes. Or Michal. Mc- I don't Michal? know how it's said. Michal? Michal. Yes. You're right. Yeah, probably she's that. mentioned it. In- I always remembered it because it, I was like, that's a boy's name. Right. When I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yep. First Samuel 19. Not a chapter of the Bible I have read in a long time. Yeah. All right. Last one. Tabitha was an early disciple of Jesus. Acts describes her as being known for her good works and acts of mercy, sewing clothes for the poor. By what other name is Tabitha known? Who is Dorcas? I knew you'd know that one. (laughs) I mean, Dorcas, come on. That's classic, classic Bible name. Nobody names their daughters after Dorcas. No, we don't get a lot of Dorcas's. noticed. Sadly. Or JL's. (laughs) Well, we're excited to hear more about some of these remarkable and powerful women of the Bible from our guest today. If ministry is a man's world where the buck stops with the man, then God really created a lot of confusion for us by making Mary the most important mentor in Jesus' life. Nijay Gupta is the author of the new book, Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. Our conversation with Nijay is coming up later in the show. I will admit that it's always been a little hard for me to imagine most of the women of the Bible as like real women with dimensionality to them. Maybe it was all the flannel boards, but also I feel like so often they were shown to me as sort of like background Mm. characters to the larger drama of the men Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. unfolding in the Bible. Yeah. And despite the fact that women are so central at like arguably the biggest moment of the New Testament, which is the resurrection, it seems like women in the New Testament Mm -hmm. in particular are kind of serve as background characters because at least in the Old Testament, we do have these women like JL, like Deborah, who like Esther, Rahab, they they mm-hmm. have these whole hinge points of the story, like kind of rest on their actions. 
Mm-hmm. But it seems like the women in the New Testament are just kind of mentioned and then dropped. We don't get a lot of their own background story. Right. Like so many of them, I feel like they're sort of um, conduits for mm-hmm. the next moment. You know, it's like they discover the empty tomb. They run to tell the disciples. And then we hear about the disciples, you know, mm-hmm. or like they're at the feet of Jesus when he's dying. But you know, that's kind of the only real reference we get to them. There's not, Mm -hmm. there's not the way like with the disciples where there's kind of a constant conversation. And we, we know that all these women are like walking around with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And and I think this is what contributes to me seeing them as like flat. It's because they were just, they're there. We know they're there, but we never get any of their stories. Mm -hmm. They had stories, obviously, Mm -hmm. What a crazy thing to choose to follow this guy around. Right. And, you know, they made those decisions. They had reasons, just like the disciples whose stories we do get, Mm. they had reasons for making that decision to drop everything and follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, does it come back down to the fact that the people who have given us these eyewitness accounts that are later kind of canonized in the Bible are men (laughs) and that men of that time even though Jesus is encountering these women in such radical kind of personal ways, the men are, they don't see them in the same, they don't see them in the same way of like value or honor. Like it takes a while for the disciples to catch up to what Jesus is modeling in terms of his own Mm. interactions with women. Yeah. And I think maybe, I mean, maybe the stories that we do get show that like, the woman at the well or um, the woman who, you know, anoints Jesus's feet with oil. Mm. I mean, or, or the conversation with Mary and Martha that where he like sort of explicitly states that being his disciple, sitting at his feet and listening to him is mm. like, is more valuable than this other kind of work, this other kind of work that women would normally be doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's also in that moment with, Mary saying, like, you can stand on your own two feet and receive teaching directly from me, your rabbi. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't need Mm -hmm. a male interlocutor to kind of interpret this and understand this. Like, you are able, you are able to be a direct disciple Mm -hmm. of mine. Yeah. And, you know, I've always thought of that story as sort of a contrast between like, you know, whenever we get it preached to us or most of the time when I get it preached, have had it preached to me, it's this idea of like, it always gets kind of simplified into don't be so busy and anxious and, you know. Having a merry heart in a Martha world. I think that was a huge <laughs> yes, best-selling book exactly. like 25 years ago. <laughs> yes, indeed it was. Um, so be quiet. Listen, it's okay to, to do that instead of like the busy work of the world or, you know, feeling like you have to get caught up in all of the demands of your household mm. or whatever. But the truth is, is that there is a sort of interesting countercultural message to, to women there where Mm -hmm. it was not like women would have been expected to go do the domestic work and let the disciples just listen to Jesus's teaching while the women went to the kitchen and made the meal for everybody. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in some ways, I guess Jesus's message was also about like, no, it's okay. It's okay for the women to be here listening to this too and not off doing women's you know, work. Doing women's work. Right. Getting preparing to serve all of you guys and your dirty feet. It does seem like 
I mean, of all the women mentioned in the New Testament, Mary, the mother of Jesus, has more of a through line. Obviously, we read about like so many of her mm-hmm. encounters with Jesus throughout his life and their conversations. But even still, you know, Mary has, <laughs> for all sorts of reasons and in all different ways, has come to be seen more of as an archetype of particular mm-hmm. ideas about what what women are rather than like a very mm-hmm. three-dimensional person who had a very specific kind yeah. of relationship with this man. Yeah, and most of those archetypes are kind of in relation to men, right? Like it's like either virgin or mother. And I feel like those are the are the are mostly the archetypes we get of Mary, right? And also then I think like just her whole life is sort of imagined as mm. in relation to men. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But not as a sex figure, I guess. So maybe not completely. But I mean, did So I think her life is mostly imagined as like this sort of in service to uh, yes. men. Yes, Mary is praised because, you know, in, in many accounts, she is praised because of her kind of sacrifice, like her willingness to kind of make room for this plan that God has for her, kind of consenting to it. And I've heard mm-hmm. interesting, more recent conversations that really make clear it's very important for us to acknowledge and, and remember that this was a choice on Mary. Like Mary had agency. This was not a plan mm-hmm. That was, like she could have said no, you know, that she, mm-hmm. because she was a full person and not like a robot or a slave, she could have said no. She chose to say yes. And and God gave her that, that choice. Right, right. And I, I think we tend to forget that she, as a person, she had a choice. She wasn't just this conduit, mm-hmm. this like passive conduit for God's plan. Mm. So in our conversation with Nijay that's coming up toward the end, he made this point that I had just, I had never considered before. And I've been thinking about it ever since. Um, He talked about the Magnificat. So Mary's Mm -hmm. song, her pronouncement (laughs) after she finds out that she's pregnant with Jesus. And he makes a connection between that and Jesus's first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about her apparent influence on Jesus. Like there's these through lines from the Magnificat to the Sermon on the Mount, these thematic through lines of those who are poor or who are suffering, that they will be uplifted, that they will be chosen and used by God. There's a chastening of the rich, of Mm -hmm. the wealthy and the greedy and the powerful. And you know, I, of course I can like recognize that those themes are there and I've, and I've only in the last, like, I don't know, maybe 10 years really even been exposed to the Magnificat in terms of like how powerful it is and how radical it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as a kid, just kind of always became a part of the Christmas story without like a lot of conversation about what it meant. Right. And I guess, I guess, I, I, I don't know. I guess I had never really thought about Mary as like educator mm. of Jesus, of like passing on radical ideas mm-hmm. to Jesus. Yeah. One of the things that Nijay points out is that Joseph, who would have been, you know, ostensibly helping to raise 
Jesus. Mm-hmm. He kind of disappears in the biblical mm-hmm. story, like we might expect in a in a traditional patriarchal culture that Joseph would be the one to take the primary responsibility of educating Jesus. And instead, it seems like Mary would have been his direct, his most direct influence. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just laughing over here. I am thinking of the dozens of times I have heard sermons or read books by men talking about how Joseph the carpenter had such an influence on Jesus and Jesus would have had, he would have been rugged and he would have had like calluses on his hands <laughs> he and he would have hands. known how to build things. <laughs> he was strong. He did stuff. He would have been so handy because of what Joseph taught him. He would have known how to work. And the Bible never says any of that. Right. It never talks about like any of that. And yet never have I heard about how Mary, who has this entire mm. beautiful soliloquy, how that might have influenced right. Jesus in any way. Right. And I'm just thinking about how like what's apparently in the Bible never got talked about, <laughs> but this like concept of Joseph as carpenter became like this, this whole theory of how Jesus was a man's man. <laughs> I mean, it's all about getting men to church. I mean, Jesus could do CrossFit. <laughs> Jesus did keto, y'all. If you look at the scriptures <laughs> and what they were eating at the time, they totally ate keto. Oh, man. I think, and, and I just think that the only Mary that we get in our heads is this soft, nurturing, mm-hmm. you know, Mary holding Jesus at the bottom of the cross, you know? We don't we don't hear the the sort of the radical mm-hmm. rebellious even like nature of the Mary that we've literally been given her words to say that she was mm-hmm. she thought a lot about how her people were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems important to see her and other you know women in scripture. To, re- to really retain that three-dimensionality, like these were real people. Do you feel like you get put in boxes often? Mm, I wonder if in the dating realm, mm-hmm. and maybe especially in the Christian dating realm, mm-hmm. like, gosh, you're a writer and editor and podcaster, and so... I mean, I wouldn't blame anybody for being intimidated, but exactly, <clears throat> kind of like, oh, well, I guess if you're that, you couldn't also be a wife or, you know, right. the, or a mother. Yeah, yeah. A wife or a mother. Like, and can you even cook? Which actually like I can. And actually I, I do have also <laughs> these maternal instincts and truly mm-hmm. love being around kids and would love to be in a partnership. Right. It's, But in terms of perception, it does seem like perhaps some Christian men have kind of been conditioned to want one thing and not the other, right? And if you're in this box, you can't be in that box. And I find that really frustrating because especially at this point in my life, I'm like, well, I am what I am. It's not to say like (laughs) I don't want to be self-reflective or defensive, but this is the path I'm on. And I'm not going to switch boxes to find a husband, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What about you? I, I, I resonate with that. I don't feel put in a box a ton professionally. Like maybe I did a little bit at the beginning, but I feel like I've been pretty lucky even as I've worked in sort of Christian institutions that there have been women who went before me that made a way for women to operate as equals in those places. Mm-hmm. 
even as there was, there were still never enough and it was never half and it was never equal parity and all of that. It still felt like I wasn't having to break a lot of barriers, but I think what you're describing, especially in dating has resonated. And I actually think that working in sort of the roles that I've had and particularly in working at Christian organizations has actually made that a little bit harder. Mm. Maybe like counterintuitively, I feel like if I had a job that was sort of like, like a marketing job at an agency, not as public facing, not as public facing and not as like Christian leadership. Right. Right. Feeling, you know, like, right. Just, and, and I think that in that role could sort of be like, well, you know, that's, that role doesn't offer the same kind of idea of the same kind of like meaning or spiritual authority or, you know, I, I think that that has has made it harder in some ways where Mm -hmm. that job could feel separate from faith or separate from the kind of idea that some of these Christian guys have had about their role in the family in terms of like spiritual authority. You're in space that's contested and that's traditionally been men's like some kind of role of spiritual authority or spiritual teaching. Some Christian men are like, Mm -hmm. well, that's my space. So if you're in that space, Mm -hmm. I can't be in that space. Like, gosh, heaven forbid that both of us, both of us could be in a position of <laughs> some kind of spiritual authority. It's like they don't think that women should have any kind of position of leadership or influence in the spiritual realm, which I would say Mary herself kind of contests in her very life. Maybe this all underscores how important the work of people like Nijay is because it then shapes perceptions of women in contemporary life. Mm -hmm. Like if I can see the women in scripture as three-dimensional people, then maybe I can actually start to see the women in my life as three-dimensional humans too. We'll hear more from Nijay about why this work felt important to him and how he changed his mind about women in leadership just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Check our feed for all the creeds. And if you like what we're doing at Say by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. You can also get in touch with us via email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We're really excited to be joined today by Nijay Gupta, author of several books on the New Testament, including the most recent book, Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. Thanks so much for being here. Hi. My pleasure. Your book is centered on women in the early church, obviously, but you start it with the story of Deborah, an Old Testament judge. So why did you decide to start there? So the reason I start with Deborah is I'm wanting to fight against some of the 
cultural assumptions within the evangelical world about women as mousy, quiet, gossipy. <laughs> Here we have someone in the Old Testament who is in the world of power. She is the Supreme Court justice. She is mm. the spiritual authority because when she's judging cases as a judge, she's judging on the basis of Torah. Mm -hmm. There's no other law but Torah for Israel. She is going into, into war. Now, she's not going to fight, but just a woman going into the war is weird. There's a battle song sung about her. Mm -hmm. So it's going to kind of just throw, throw mm. a kind of bomb into our assumptions about the Christian woman. Mm. Part of what you write about in the book is your own shift, your own transformation from a way of believing about women and their roles in church today and in the past. You write that you used to read the Bible in a flat way and ended up kind of neglecting the women of Scripture. What changed for you? Yeah, you know, I, I was really seminary where I started to rub shoulders with people from different traditions, including the woman that would end up marrying Amy. I was told as an Orthodox Presbyterian, stay away from those MDiv women because they're disobeying God. And I made the, you know, happy mistake of spending time in the cafeteria with fellow students, including these Master Divinity women who are studying for pastoral ministry. I mean, they're hard to stay away from, you know, <laughs> so alluring. Yeah. I mean, they're carrying their Bibles and everything. <laughs> I was taught these people are kind of crazy and liberal. And one professor even said, don't let them take away your faith. <gasps> Those poor women. <laughs> I know. Uh, I have more stories, uh, but we don't have enough time. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but just talking about my wife, you know, we're both from the Midwest. We both went to state schools. We were both involved in parachurch. We both love missions. Mm -hmm. She was a missionary in Spain. I did missions work in Eastern Europe. We both have the same view of scripture, high Christology. We check all the boxes and I kept thinking, she doesn't seem dangerous. <laughs> I'll confess something to you, though. I wrote my first systematic theology paper on why women shouldn't be pastors. Mm. I'm not sure why I chose that subject, except I think I wanted to prove that I belonged in the club. Mm -hmm. Maybe somewhere in the back of my mind, I was unsure. So I kind of was overcompensating. And then I met Amy and I met other Master Divinity students that were women and that supported women from Episcopal tradition and other traditions. And I thought, I got to do a deep dive. So I spent two years studying the issue in depth. At that time, that was Ben Witherington, Craig Keener, Linda Belleville, R.T. France, all these scholars, Walt Kaiser. And it wasn't so much that I just sort of jumped ship to another ship. It was more that I came to see complementarianism as an edifice, kind of like a Jenga tower. And as I was studying, some of these pieces I thought were really foundation or solid were more like these Jenga blocks that were coming mm. out. There are all these examples where things aren't so easy or this idea that the disciples are men. Yes, but by the time we get to the book of Acts, they all but disappear. And now we got Paul, we got Barnabas. Mm. The apostles are kind of disappearing a little bit. You still got James and Peter, but you know, then in Romans you have Junia and you have others. And so it was more that this tower just started to get really rickety. You spent a lot of time in the book looking at the cultural, religious, political context of the early mm -hmm. church in Rome. And you're clear that the Roman world was not egalitarian <laughs> or right. feminist. You're not doing a total rewrite of what is what no. was clearly a patriarchal 
culture, but it wasn't maybe flatly patriarchal in the ways that you had described earlier. Yes. So what else was at play in the Roman world where the early church took root that would have shaped women's lives in that time? So I like to talk about in the Roman world, there's multiple indexes of power. And so one of those is patriarchy, and it's definitely clear. It's built into laws. But there were other ones as well, and those are important. I realized one of them was social class. So if you were a woman, but you were high status, you could actually exercise a lot of influence, and you had a lot of social capital in your possession. Another one was productivity. So it's kind of funny. The Roman Empire wanted prestige, which Mm -hmm. is usually a smaller organization thing. But they also wanted expansion. <laughs> they wanted everything, right? They wanted to be Walmart and the high-end boutique at the same time. So they would turn a blind eye to women who could bring them productivity, for example, in business. Mm-hmm. How do we know this? Pompeii is just a treasure trove of information. And we have a statue of this you know, woman named Eumachia. And she gave money to the city fullers. They built things for her, and we can tell that she was a mover and shaker. So then my question is, what did early Christianity do with these women who were movers and shakers? Mm -hmm. Phoebe, for example, Lydia. These were what we think of as perhaps widow, high class, or powerful women. And I don't imagine that Paul said, hey, you need to get married. You need to submit to your husband. You need to support them. How Mm -hmm. do I know that? The book of Acts, Paul preaches the gospel Lydia, she and her whole household become believers. Then the apostles go on these adventures, they go to jail, then they get out. And where do they go? They go to Lydia's house. Why? She's hosting a group of believers. That would have been natural. Peter's in prison. He gets out. Where does he go? The house of the mother of John Mark. What are all these women doing hosting stuff? They are helpful leaders in their own right, and Mm -hmm. Christians are going to utilize them. And what I want to say about context is... It's not out of place or strange for a woman to be leading something. Did Jesus have women disciples? Many people are quick to say, nope, there were 12, the end. The women just kind of followed them along. You know, I always sort of imagine like it was like the 12 with Jesus up there and then like 30 feet back, the like gaggle of women following along. So (laughs) I think that's how it was depicted on the flannel boards. A A group of women in scientific terms is called a gaggle. Yeah. Gaggle, okay. In ancient times, that's what they were. (laughs) (laughs) You know, again, you know, very rarely growing up did I ever hear about women in the orbit of Jesus as he was traveling. Maybe people have heard of Mary Magdalene. Maybe Mm -hmm. people know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was around. But actually, Luke gives us a lot of this information. It's really helpful. Luke chapter 8, he actually peels back the curtain and shows us these women that were not only traveling with Jesus— we can almost take for granted they were single. He kind of tips his hat to that. And they were paying for Jesus's ministry out of their own money, which means they were kind of independently wealthy. So these aren't just tagalongs. These were seemingly Mm -hmm. important women in their own right. They're traveling with Jesus. In the end of the Gospel of Luke, you have, you know, the, the women realize there's an empty tomb there. These angels appear to these women. And the angels kind of chide the women and say, don't you remember that he said he would suffer and die and rise again as he taught you? Mm. And that teaching does appear earlier in the gospel of Luke, but 
he's holding them directly accountable for his teaching. Now, the word disciple literally means learner, meaning student of a didaskalos, a teacher, right? And Jesus is regularly called teacher. In fact, sometimes women disciples refer to him as teacher. And so a disciple is someone that follows a teacher and learns from them. Mm-hmm. So many scholars have said, even though they're not considered part of the 12, this idea that they were followers and disciples is pretty clear because they show up for Jesus even when the men are nowhere to be found. Strike the mm-hmm. shepherd, the sheep will scatter, but the women will show up when they're needed. Mm. In the Eastern tradition, Mary is called Is Apostolas, which means equal to the apostle or apostle to the apostles. So, you know, I don't know if we have time to talk about Junia, but if you add Junia to that, if she's an apostle, the technical language of apostle means one who is sent out in mission by Mm -hmm. Jesus, and those people are disciples. So I actually think that Junia was probably part of the 70 that are sent out in mission during Jesus's earthly ministry. If that's true, that is mind-blowing. And it does validate that these women were there. Yeah. So how much of this is a translation issue? How much of it is just a patriarchal lens put over these messages? You know, if what you're saying in the study that you're bringing out mm-hmm. is is true, like where did we get so off and how did that happen so quickly? I mean, bias is real. And, you know, in some ways, Bible translation has been an old boys club for a very, very long time. I don't think it's malicious in many cases. I think in some cases it might be, but I think in most cases it's not malicious. It's just the limitations of a narrow lens, right? And you're Mm going to just see things the way you see them. I teach Greek, so I teach some things about translation. I tell my students, there's a Latin proverb that linguists use, traditory, traditory, which means translators are liars. What that means is translators control information. It's just part of what we do. We build interpretation into translation. So if someone tells you, mm-hmm. I've created an interpretation-free translation, mm-hmm. uh, just turn around and run as fast as you can away from them because they're going to sell you some bad snake oil in a couple minutes later. So translations, they're going to build in the perspective of the translator. We try to limit dangerous and problematic things, but it's just it's just the nature of the beast. So let's give an example with Phoebe. There's different elements of her personality and what's said about her that could be translated different ways. So one is the term that we use now, benefactor, used to be translated as helper. Mm. Helper meaning <laughs> like assistant mm-hmm. versus benefactor meaning like powerful patron. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And we're learning the cultural, political, social entailments of that term And we really have to translate it benefactor rather than she's a helper, assistant. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Another term is diakonos. Some people have translated that as servant. She's a servant of the church in Kenkria. And I think that's meant to be diminutive. It's meant to say, ah, she's not that big of a deal. Well, Paul's whole point is commendation. (laughs) So the whole point is she is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of want to push the envelope and say, let's translate that minister. Minister is the Latin equivalent of diakonos. Uh, I know that bothers people because it sounds like she's a pastor, but he's giving her a high title. He's saying she is a leader. She is Mm -hmm. a respected leader from Kenkria, someone that you can trust. So translation is actually really, really important. And we need to get those translations right. Camping out a little bit more on Romans 16, which is a chapter 
I think a lot of people would easily kind of <laughs> gloss over or glance over because it just seems like a list of like shout outs from Paul, like <laughs> just a list of names. Right. But right. you're highlighting how significant it is. First of all, how many women are named in Romans 16? You said there, there are 10 out of 26 or 27 people, but also he starts right. with Phoebe, a diaconos, and then he also quickly mentions Priscilla and Aquila and mentions Priscilla first in mm-hmm. this wife-husband team. So tell us why more people need to read Romans 16. <laughs> this is not just a list of greetings. It's an honor roll. Hmm. It's an award ceremony. He's saying these are great heroes of the faith. And one scholar pointed out to me, and it's kind of it's kind of changed how I look at this chapter. It's basically an application of Galatians 3.28, neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave or free. Why? Because some of the names in that list are what we think of as slave names. Slaves have mm-hmm. often utilitarian names like Urbanus, the city dweller, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people name their slaves, you know, prima, secundus, tertius, meaning number one, number two, number three. Right. And so some of them are slave names. Some of them are names of elites. Some of them are Jewish names. And some mm-hmm. of them are what I think we think of as Gentile names. And... Some of them are men and some of them are women. And what's really interesting is he doesn't name all the men first and then all the women. Mm -hmm. And what's also interesting is he doesn't genderize his commendation. So Luke Timothy Johnson, I think, said if you cover up the names, you wouldn't be able to tell which are men and which are women. Hmm. That is really, really fascinating to me because... The Roman world loved to genderize, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Women should be sweet and loyal and quiet, and men should be rough and tough and burly and hairy and, you know, intelligent. So Rome would have wanted some differentiation in that. Mm-hmm. And maybe you have one exception of a really powerful woman that you might kind of turn a blind eye to. But Paul just kind of mixed them all. He just kind of shakes them, you know, up and mixes them. I think he does that on purpose. And you mentioned mentioning Priscilla first. Um, I've always wondered if the name order means anything. I actually found an obscure sermon by John Chrysostom from the 4th century through a scholar named Margaret Mitchell. And she was kind enough to, to give me this translation, an English translation of his sermon. And in this sermon, he actually talks about the name order. He talks about how it's significant. And he talks about how it indicates that she's the more pious one, which I take to mean they're both involved, she and her husband, in business and ministry, and she was more involved in ministry. And then he goes on to say how she actually took the lead in teaching when she was teaching Apollos in the book of Acts. Hmm. So she comes across as a very frontier, church planter, capable teacher, intelligent, ambitious uh, woman and the closest thing to what I think of as kind of a shoulder to shoulder co-pastor of a house church. And if we pivot over to Colossians, we have this figure that almost nobody's heard of in the churches that you might go to, which is Nympha. And I almost, you know, titled that chapter, the most important Christian you never heard of, because Nympha appears to me to be the only example in the New Testament of a female solo house church leader. Mm. She's not mentioned with a man, but the pattern of how she's talked about, about she and that church that meets in her house, fits the pattern of Stephanus and the church that meets in his house and Priscilla and Aquila and Philemon 
and all the other people mentioned in First Corinthians where we have house church leaders. So there's no reason to believe that Priscilla was not out front leading in the way that Nympha and others were. I feel like one of the arguments I see honestly pretty regularly these days is that we're doing a lot of mental gymnastics, a lot of gymnastics mm-hmm. with the scripture in order to like prove this point that isn't obvious. And if this is really the meaning that we're supposed to take from it, it should be obvious. It's a plain reading of scripture. We shouldn't have to do all of this mental work and twisting ourselves up to get there. What's your response to that? Guess who is using the clear text argument in the pro and anti-abolition era? It was actually the pro-slavery people that were saying, listen, Mm -hmm. slavery is literally written into the Bible. Colossians 3, Ephesians 5 and 6, 1 Timothy, Philemon. So when people say, the Bible's been so clear on this for so long, and now you're coming with your liberal agenda, then I say, you have just repeated the exact arguments for pro-slavery. How did we ever get to anti-slavery? John Barclay, one of my uh, professors in my doctoral program, uh, wrote a really helpful article on this. And he said it was actually theological arguments about human dignity and anthropology that led to abolition. And it was actually a theology of freedom. And it was a theology of community and generosity in Galatians 3.28 it wasn't the specific quote-unquote clear text. It was really what we call biblical theology. What is the Bible really about? And how does it look at the person? And in many ways, that is what we're doing. Now, I do think I can point to texts like Romans 16, like the Gospels, like Deborah. But sometimes we have to say a good biblical theology mm-hmm. transcends one quote-unquote clear text, or even mm-hmm. two clear texts. Yeah, reading reading the Bible holistically and developing a theology that tries to account for all of Scripture that then places particular passages in a broader context of interpretation. Exactly. We need some other framework to help us understand the whole. If ministry is a man's world where the buck stops with the man, then God really created a lot of confusion for us by making Mary the most important mentor in Jesus' life. We don't have any theological text written by Joseph. Nothing. He says a few words, but we don't have anything. But we have Mary's song of praise, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 Mm -hmm. to 55, which many theologians, including myself, believe this is one of the most profound theological statements in all of the Bible, perhaps in all theology of all time. Uh It's launched political movements. It's been used in revolutions in Guatemala and India and elsewhere. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. This isn't just her diary entry. (laughs) And some scholars of Luke and other gospels have said there are direct connections between the Magnificat and the teaching of Jesus, meaning where did Jesus get his teaching from? Uh Who would have been the most important influence? According to Deuteronomy, the Shema, it's going to be his parents. And when Jesus was working out his first set of sermons, who's in his house? Mary. She's probably talked to him about it. I find direct information within scripture that's going to be a major question mark against that classic reading of 1 Timothy 2. I have more to say about that, but that'll that'll keep us going for a while. I feel kind of, I don't know, silly maybe, (laughs) that I've never put together a connection between like 
the Magnificat and the Sermon on the Mount and like how there might have been influence there. Well, I think we have this view about Jesus where God just sort of zaps him mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. divine teaching or he just sort of, you know, came preloaded with it. Like I have Microsoft Word already in my computer. But given the times that Jesus takes to go off by himself and pray, given the vulnerabilities he has in the garden where he wants the disciples to be with him, he needed people. There are times where he needed his mother and she doesn't strike me as a quiet, mousy woman, mm-hmm. right? She's at the wedding at Cana and she's like, he's like, it's not my hour woman. He's like, he'll do it. Don't worry. He'll do it. He always uh-huh. caves. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> he always caves for mama. Um, so <laughs> there's a theological perspective I often introduce my students called Deus Absconditus, which means the God who likes to hide, the God who steals away and hides. Why would God hide? Um, because he wants to be pursued and found. Hmm. And so there's often kind of the the wide road of where we look for things. And there's often this little breadcrumb trail where God is hiding. And scripture's constantly encouraging us to step off the well-lit main road and find that breadcrumb trail. The tall grass is tickling our legs. We're like, should I be on this trail? Am I going the right way? You find another breadcrumb constantly happening. In fact, this is what early Christians did, where they said, there's this golden thread of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. You're going to have to take your eye off of some of the main stuff and just look for Jesus coming through. I think this is happening in Luke and the book of Acts with women. Women are constantly there where they're not supposed to Mm -hmm. be. Thank you so much for leading us to some of the breadcrumbs that we and Mm -hmm. some of our listeners might have missed. Yeah, just how significant women were in the Christian story and still are. Yes. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham and Julia Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone. And Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for listening. listening.